Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. I'm here with Dr. Brandon Johnson, who is the Director of Choral Activities at Eastern Michigan University. Thank you so much for being on this show. Sure. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Yay. All right. We're just going to jump right into it. Tell me how you became Dr. Brandon Johnson. What led you to pursue music and to earn a doctorate in the field? Well, sure. So I'm actually one of those students who came to music quite late, and um, I didn't start singing until my junior year of high school. I had I was always sort of dabbling in music. Um, we moved around a lot. I uh, lived in 10 different homes before seventh grade, and so we were moving around, and uh, I started out on violin, um, and then we moved to a school, a really small rural school, and they didn't have any kind of string program. So I um, uh, got involved with percussion. And I, I just, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the sort of didactic nature of playing all the instruments. It was just fun. Fun in a way that um, uh, that it just, you know, for whatever reason, I always, I can get sort of overwhelmed with enthusiasm for things. So, so I just practiced and practiced and practiced. And um, somewhere around my um, sophomore year, it was my sophomore year, I was admitted into the All-State Orchestra for Percussion, which seemed at the time like some kind of mistake or miracle, one of the two, I'm not sure which. Um, and that experience was probably the first time that I really experienced music in a sort of meaningful way, um, not just fun or in enjoying the social aspects of being a part of an ensemble. It was, it was really deeply meaningful to me. Um, and... Uh, that next year then, a friend of mine talked me into joining the choir, which I had never sung anything before. And um, so I got involved with the choir. Had, we had a great choral program at Brainerd High School in Minnesota and um, learned all kinds of wonderful things. And again, one of those sort of mistakes slash miracle things that happened is that my high school director uh, nominated me to be a part of the uh, Minnesota All-State Lutheran Choir, which was, you know, another sort of really meaningful experience. Um, I didn't know anything about music. As a percussionist, you can get a long way without learning to read the music, <laughs> at least I did. And so I, I didn't know anything about music. I just knew that I was incredibly moved by it. I was enthusiastic about it. Tell me a little bit more about that experience when you said for the first time, it wasn't just about being fun, but it was it was moving for you. It was meaningful. Um, what about that experience made you feel that way? Yeah. Oh, I, I distinctly remember they were playing a Sibelius um, symphony, and there there wasn't um, anything for me to do during that movement. So, as the week progressed, uh, they were. You know, I just got to listen, and the music just seemed to sink into me in a way that uh, wind ensemble music didn't. I, it was always fun. I loved band. I, I, if you have any band listeners, I'm not um, hating on the bands, but it didn't strike me in the same way that the orchestra did. It was, um, it was just so emotional for me. I don't know why. It was the sound, and it goes, you know, the sound of the orchestra, the sound of the choir for me, is what initially drew me in and you know then that following year I was in choir and the addition of text and meaning and there was a certain seriousness that <laughs> choir people take uh they, they <laughs> there's an intentionality there that I um at least in my band world it wasn't it wasn't that we were um the sort of idea that music for music's sake was was important and I was resonated with that but when we got into the situation where we were adding poetry and um, that meant I was really adding myself, my life, to the musicking experience. So mm -hmm. 
um, in a way that wasn't true for percussion. Maybe that's not true of all percussionists, but it was true for me. <laughs> I just like to do it. Um, We're not making any statements. No, I'm not. I, no, I, I just, <laughs> I'm just saying that for me, once I got to add text, it really meant that I got to mm -hmm. add myself to the experience. And so, yeah, so that has been my life's passion ever since, really. And it's a, it's a part of myself that only my choir singers know. Um, even my wife, my children, they don't really know that side of me. It's not that I'm hiding it. It's just that we don't sit around and discuss poetry at the dinner table. Maybe we should, but we don't. So it's just an incredibly personal and um, meaningful kind of thing. And I, I don't know why, you know, the it didn't trigger with the bands, but it did with the orchestra. So. I can certainly relate to that. I It's funny, the parallels, um, because I didn't start choir until I was in my junior year of high school. I did sing. It's interesting because you said you had never sung, and then you just you, you came into choir. Um, but I had a band background, and I played trumpet, and I was going to be a band director. But when you talk about um, the poetry, the words, that is what... Um, I think kind of ultimately drew me to that to that side as well. So there is something different about that, right? I mean, it's not a band and orchestra. That music is so beautiful and moving. Like you said, it's nothing about that. But when you add the poetry, um, it's it's definitely different, don't you think? Well, I sort of alluded to this, but it, it became more personal to me. Like it 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 um, adding the text meant I got to add my experience as a person the human experience of connecting soul to music um, was easier for me when we were all uh, going in the same direction I think that that was the other thing that was um, moving for me about choirs is that we had a unified destination while we all have different experiences and we all are processing the poetry differently we're all having a similar kinds of life experience with with that music so knowing that we're all, you know, maybe it's a sacred piece and we're all sort of overwhelmed with the majesty of God. Well, that's a really broad thing, and God can be many things to many different people, but just having that destination in mind was really, uh, it was meaningful to me, and it really got me thinking about music and teamwork. And, you know, I was always a part of teams, you know, growing up I was... Um, never a particularly skilled athlete, but I was always involved in it. And I loved the dynamic of teams and working together towards this really interesting result. And I don't know why I'm interested in, I just have always loved the idea that we can be more than we are with the help of others. Um, when did you know that you wanted to become uh, a music teacher when did that passion turn into now I want to take that and I want to make that my profession truthfully it was the very first warm-up I did with the choir like oh wow yeah so I had this all-state experience and I was overwhelmed by music and I was filled with these feelings about music we went into that first warm-up with the choir and it was just it blew my mind I'm like whoa this is amazing and so then I started to think about it but I was not a particularly mm, I was very scared about admitting that to myself and to others. I didn't feel like others would think that that was a good path for me, my parents or my friends, or I just, I felt like I needed to keep that quiet. So I didn't really, um, I was afraid to sort of say it out loud until after my uh, first year of college. I went into college thinking, well, I want to be a music teacher, but don't tell anybody. So I'll start in this pre-med kind of track. I was thinking about sports medicine or chiropractic or just something involved in the sciences, which I don't know why I thought that would be a good idea either, but that was just, I didn't have a direction, so that was just the direction I started out in. But on the sly, on the down low, I was taking music theory classes, and I, I said to myself, this was all an inner conversation, that if I can pass these classes, which I was not at all sure that I could, if I could pass them, that I was going to do this, and I just wasn't sure I was capable. And that's been the ongoing conversation for the last 30 years is, are you worthy of this? Are you, is this something that uh, you can dream, dare to aspire to? Because it was so wonderful, you know, this, this 
a very rich life in the arts, I understood and recognized immediately um, as being something really special and unique. Um, I'm, I like people. I've always liked people. So I could do a number of different things. I could sell shoes or cars or I don't <laughs> even know what I, I, you know, I just, everything else is a, is a distant second. Um, there's no other like thought in my mind, like, oh, maybe I should have been, it was music and then everything else is fine. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you think, um, because you didn't have this, uh, innate talent, you, you kind of describe yourself as kind of, um, like a late bloomer, like late to the game of like, you loved it. Um, but you didn't know if you were good enough. I think that's very interesting when, um, I look at where you are now and and you would think you were someone who had been singing your whole life and had these experiences. Do you think the fact that you struggled with these things, you know, am I good enough? And uh, does that play into the teacher that you are now and the way that you can relate to your students? I think it makes me a much better teacher. I do. Um, I acknowledge students' feelings of inadequacy and and I understand them. I acknowledge when they're struggling with vocal technique or with piano skills, and I and I can relate to it. Um, I think that I've had some wonderful teachers, and the teachers that I've had throughout my educational experience have really, I just admire them, and they have pushed me, I think, in ways, but um, I think at times they could never relate to, to students in the way that I could because they didn't have that experience. They started playing piano when they were, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper or were just an amazing singer. And so um, for me to work through all that um, was an exercise in humility, persistence, and now as a teacher, my heart is with those kids who are struggling it, my, I'm, I love all of my students, of course, and the ones who are immediately great when they walk in the door, those students are just, they're easy to love, right? But the students who are sometimes lost or struggling, those are not always the easy students to connect with for, for teachers. And I think my, my background helps me with that. I'm a little, maybe just a hair more patient. Um, and I've always felt that, you know, that reoccurring thought in my mind, like, well, if it's even possible, I want to do this. So I approach those students with that idea, like, if somebody believes it's possible, I want to help them live in a life in the arts. I want to help them live the kind of rich, full life in the arts that I have. Um, I had an experience with a teacher at my undergraduate level who, I mean, it was just devastating to me. He called me in his office, like, Brandon, you're really a nice guy. You know, you, you should be in business. <laughs> it was, it was his way of saying, you know, maybe this isn't for you. And for whatever reason, the way that I'm built is that's a challenge. That's, that's absolutely him throwing down the gauntlet to me. And, um, uh, I've got just enough of that to me. And that's probably the only reason that I have, um, continued in the profession is that, it doesn't have that much to do with any ability. It has everything to do with um, persistence in the face of obstacle to the point of delusion. <laughs> you know, like, like there's no reason I should keep going at this. I just keep going. You know, I just keep going. And I just keep working really hard at it. My, my parents have farming backgrounds. And so one of the things that I learned growing up, they had this 80-acre horse farm. One of the things that I just, I'm so grateful that my um, parents instilled in me was just, you know, I don't care what you want to do. These are the things that you, you have to do. And for me, then that translated to the end of that sentence, which is if you want to live this rich art in life, and you guess what? You have to really work on your vocal technique. You have to really work on the piano. You have to, you have to really buckle down on these areas that are, we all have things... Be, in the profession that are difficult for us. The human relation stuff was never going to be that for me. That's fun. I enjoy that. But for me, especially as a 19, 20-year-old, it was concentration and focus and careful thinking. And so I just needed 
somebody to challenge me, which I got plenty of challenge. It's so refreshing to hear someone say that it's less about ability and more about persistence. You said to the point of delusion, I love it. I love it. Well, because especially right now, we I feel like we live in this world where so many people see the end result, you know, on through social media or whatever. They see this person is already talented. This person, how am I ever going to get to that point? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that actually leads me to my next question, which is, you know, where do you see students struggling the most on their journey to their own, you know, um, artistry, like discovering who they are as an individual? Where where are they struggling? Well, I, you know, I would consider myself sort of mid-career, so I have a little bit of historic reference upon which I can draw, but... The emotional health of a musician is a fragile thing. And, you know, yes, everybody, unless you grew up as a pianist, struggles with the piano side of things. And we all come to a point with our vocal technique where we we run up against challenges and music theory or history can be difficult. And But none of that is really what's um, what gets in my students' way. What gets in my students' way the most is what we were talking about, this idea of self-worth and their ability to pursue music combined with what you were just saying. We've moved from music as being a thing that everybody does to being a thing that only a few people do. And I think that that's a catastrophic um, thing for humanity. I just think it's disastrous because even in the church, we've moved away from, you know, congregational singing and, you know, the, the choir to the worship team, which I don't have anything against the worship team. That's fine. But it, it reinforces in people's mind that music is performance and not an experience for all of us. So those of us that are really, really skilled at performance feel at home and comfortable in the profession, feel like we have value. Um, but as a music educator, uh, which is really how I see myself, I see myself as a, I'm a performer only when I have to be, all the rest of the time, I'm, I'm a teacher. And I, I think that students really struggle with this. And I have students now who, who are teaching at universities and colleges, and we have this ongoing conversation with ourselves that that, I think that people believe that that self-doubt sometimes goes, it goes away at a certain point. Like, oh, now you have your doctorate. Now you feel, it, it's worse when you get your doctorate because then you, you're supposed to know everything when, guess what? You still don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love when people, because you're a musician, they'll ask you, uh, you know, do you know this band or do you know it? Yeah. You're like, no. It's like, are you supposed to know everything yeah. <laughs> about music? It's like, it's literally impossible. Uh, the answer is no, <laughs> but I have a book or I know a way to find it. No, it's, so I think that when I see students dropping out of the the music degree here at Eastern or in other places, I'm always like a little part of me dies because I wonder about it. I wonder if it's because they don't feel that they can do it as opposed to that they don't feel called to it. Now, my experience is that this was this is just a calling for me. I, I mean, ha- who changes their lives based on a warm up? in the first day of choir at, you know, that's just, so I admit, you know, I used to think that I was Joe, average Joe, and my experience was everybody's experience, but I've come to understand that my experience is my own and it's unique to me. And so when students leave, I just want to make sure that it's not a lack of persistence and, uh, and an issue of worthiness. I, I want it to be about, no, I really like jazzed about videography. That's what I want to do. Well, great. Go pursue that with all your heart and spirit. But um, I think it, it inhibits students from throwing themselves all the way into it. And um, I have this anecdote about when I was a uh, sophomore in high school. I was not a particularly good student so I never really aspired to AP classes or to, to really push myself in that way I was just just average guy and I I decided I was going to take an honors biology class it's really you know felt like a putting myself out there I worked really really hard I was just I, for the first time really academics were not something that I really concerned myself much with when I was in high school it just wasn't I don't know it just wasn't my thing my parents were happy to give me the freedom to do the things that I love to do. And so 
at any rate, I, I really threw myself into this class and I ended up with a C. Oh, I was devastated. It was it felt like a confirmation of everything that I believed about myself. And so Which was what? Well, that you're just you're just you're not that smart, you're not that talented, you're not that good. And so that effort, like finally I feel you know, the analogy is a, a little, you know, five year old out on the edge of the diving board getting ready to jump into the deep water mm-hmm. and they do and instead of, you know, you, you face that fear and it, it didn't go exactly as you thought it might. And so then you're discouraged. So all that to say, um, if you're a musician and you're listening to this, if this is your calling, if this is your passion, if this is what, you know, makes you, uh, your life rich and engaged, then pursue it. And all the rest of these things are skills that can be learned. Becoming a good singer is a skill that can be learned. Now, we're all limited by, you know, if I really, really want to be a professional basketball player, that's probably not going to happen. I'm five foot 11, 170 pounds, and not very fast, nor do I shoot well. But, and I think that no amount of work is going to change those physical things. So you can't just decide you want to be, you know, Pavarotti. Thomas Hampson, but you can live a life that's rich in the arts and becoming a healthy singer, overcoming those obstacles is totally within your power and success is there for the taking. It's just a matter of how badly you want to push through when things get difficult because life is difficult, whether it's in music or if you decide to do something else, it's going to be hard. You just have to decide how you want to spend your time. Is that what you told yourself when you... Um, like you got this grade, right? I mean, you had really poured yourself into it. And, uh, and it sounds like, you know, you were really uh, heartbroken about it. I mean, you had really so so all these things that you're saying now, were those same things going through your head then? Like, what did you do? What were the tools that you used to get you through these, these difficult obstacles to overcome them? I, I think it all in retrospect added to my persistence, once I decided, you know, I you can fold it up and go home or you can, which is sort of what I did academically at that point. I'm just like, well, okay, that's the end of that. I'm not going to take AP, you know, mm-hmm. physiology or something like that. I'm just going to, I'm just going to continue to think about my future you know, mm-hmm. as a sophomore in high school. So, um, so you shifted your energy like, you yeah, know. I just, I just assumed, well, okay, well that didn't work out. Not in the way that I hoped that it would. I, th- mm-hmm. I always secretly thought, well, if I really applied myself, I could do it. And I really pride myself, and it didn't go well the first time. And that's such a great life lesson, especially for musicians, because, well, I'm going to say singers. Singers are, it's so vulnerable. And I'll never forget, like, the first, <laughs> the first, like, jury I gave. You know, it didn't go well. And it's because I was totally inexperienced. And I, I think that that's probably, if there's a foundation upon which, I approach my teaching, it has to do with the difference between ability and experience. And very often those two things are um, misunderstood. Experience leads to ability. Ability with no experience is it's like a party trick. That's not real. That's not sustainable. That's why lots of times really talented students will come. It doesn't surprise me at all if they leave because they just they've never had to work and when you get to the university you're all going to have to work (laughs) at something and whether that's so they might be coming and be the shining star in their high school program they come here and they thought maybe a music major was good because they were just sort of naturally good at it but when it comes to it they didn't really want to they didn't want to spend their time in a practice room they didn't want to go to music theory and figure out how it works so yeah ability versus experience i think is pretty a pretty important distinction Thank you for being so open about um, your journey, because I think that it's really helpful for people to hear that they can um, struggle in the beginning and not be the best singer in the choir or the whatever. And, and then and, and then look at what you're doing now and what you've been able to accomplish. And um, and that reminds me, you have some recent professional news, right? You you have some new endeavors that are happening. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a great thrilled to be, you know, asked um, to uh, 
to lead the Michigan Glee Club and to join their conducting faculty. And I'm really excited about the endeavor. And, I, <laughs> you know, the University of Michigan is a, an amazing tradition, and it'll be really exciting to be a portion of that tradition for a duration of time. And the University of Michigan Glee Club, I, I don't feel like there's another choir in the country that's quite like it. It's a unique um, tenor bass experience. And going back to the turn of the century, not the 20th century, you know, or the, not the 21st century, but the 20th century, you know. And to be a part of that experience is really, really cool. The other piece is living here in Southeast Michigan without having any university ties is also kind of a strange experience. So, you know, the University of Michigan casts such a big shadow across the region. Um, it'll just be fun to be a little bit more closely connected to it. Um, of course, I'm honored to be asked. I, I, I really have a just so much respect for my colleagues, uh, Mark Stover and Eugene Rogers. I just, I love them. And I, I think that they do really, really great work. And, you know, they're not only my colleagues, they're my friends. And so I'm excited to spend this time with them. And um, every job is so unique. My, my first job was at Houghton College, which is a small liberal arts college, in, a Christian college in Western New York with a total student population of around 1,000. And then I came to Eastern, which is sort of a Midwest regional public school and it's sort of like the difference between playing ping pong and, you know, volleyball. The, the elements are still there, but they're really very different jobs. And I say this all the time to my students. Being a really excellent elementary school teacher has very little to do with being an excellent middle school teacher. And that has very little to do with being an excellent high school teacher. And that actually has very little to do with being an excellent community uh, choir so the the every job is so unique and one of the things I learned early on is that professional fit is really really important uh, you and I were visiting briefly before we got started my first job was 5 through 12 in a small rural town in Minnesota and um, what I learned from that year is that what it's really important that what you consider success to be the same thing that the institution considers success. And they were so very excited for the Grease medley that they do at the end of every academic year. They roll the motorcycle out on stage and they start it up and they rev it up and everybody gets really excited. That to me at that stage of my life felt like it felt like an abomination. Like that was not anything <laughs> that I thought that I wanted to be doing. And I had this really distinct moment in that same sort of pops concert. I was, I had invited my, you know, my university friends. There's a couple of university friends and they, we were just palling around and they're all music teachers. And we had spent a year just like commiserating. Well, they were able to come to my concert. And I was conducting Jeremiah was a bullfrog with a headband from the podium. And I was thinking to myself, I never want to do this again. This is terrible. And 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 so yeah. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Dun, dun, dun. And for a lot of excuse me, for a lot of um, musicians in and that would not have been the way that I felt about it. Um, earlier that year, we were working on you know Salvation is Created, um, this piece that I have been really really. And the students could ha not have been less interested, nor could the faculty have been l uh, less interested in that. So it was clear to me by about November, like, oh, if this is what teaching is, that this is not, this is not what I thought it was going to be, and it's time for me to go to graduate school. So um, I was accepted to a graduate school and was ready to go, and then I stumbled into at the ACDA conference, the summer conference that was in august 15th or something like that there was this great great suburban high school program with this long-standing tradition that didn't have a conductor they haven't been able to find somebody and would i apply and I said, no i've got, you know i've got these plans now would you apply it'd be great just go for the experience and i went and i was you know this is what this is what i'm supposed to be doing so so then i was able to uh walk into a place and be myself and have it feel like a outrageous success even though I'm the exact same person 
um, doing with the exact same set of teaching priorities, but it was about fit. So the, going back to the University of Michigan and Eastern and Houghton and my career path, a couple things have been true. The first is that I've never been able to foresee my career path. Never have I <laughs> have I seen it coming. There's always been a surprise when something happens to me professionally. And um, two, that that I'm just really glad to be able to experience that culture and uh, with those people in in a real way um, that's sort of authentic, like being there and um, it's a it's a brief, it's a you know, a replacement of a leave so I'll be there for you know a semester so it's just kind of a fun way to experience it but I'm excited about it that's great I love the way that you look at life these things that happen um, and you keep talking about fit uh, so often when something happens I feel like people will blame themselves I mean whether it's a job or a relationship or whatever it's like what did I do wrong what but you said you were the exact same person and you went into this different position and you felt very successful and you were able to thrive. So um, perhaps that's also important for people to know when they're on this journey and it's difficult uh, to be a musician, to be a teacher, I mean, or or whatever you're doing, right, is that it's not just about you, it's about what's happening on the other end and you've got to find that good fit. And I love how every time something didn't quite work out, you didn't just toss that aside. You said, you know, that's actually helping guide me to the next thing that's actually meant to be for me. Um, and I and, and I guess it's all meant to be for you, but it's leading you to to something even closer, something even better. Uh, in one of your videos for your students that you made, you asked them to um, to find a role model. And find someone they can uh, kind of model their gestures off of. And so I'm wondering who your role, your <laughs> conductor role model oh, is. Oh, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, well, I would say that I have several. And one of the one of the reasons I say that in the video is that I I think that students who most of my students are applied singers, they they you know they're music education students who are deeply involved in their voice training and they might have vocal you know sort of role models they might listen to Thomas Hampson or Renee Fleming but i i don't think they naturally think about having conducting role models and so so one i just want to let them know that it's okay not only to think about the sound like oh this is a, such a great choir and this is such a great singer but to be thinking about what the gesture looks like and and how it how it works um so Renee Claussen was my undergraduate teacher, and he will forever be a, a role model for me. Um, Bruce Chamberlain is uh, my graduate instructor, and he will forever be a role model for me. And then I take bits of everybody else and things that I love about them. And I admire about what they do, both gesturally and from a teaching standpoint. Weston Noble um, will always be a mentor for me. The way he approached life, the way he approached the ensemble, the way he approached people and students was so, in so many ways, uh, a model for the way that I interact with students. Um, From a gesture standpoint, there's a lot of really good conductors and... Boy, I hesitate to say because I don't want I don't want somebody to feel left out. But um, I think that the the gesture of Alan Hightower is remarkably good, and um, Dan Barra, their gesture is remarkably good. And I'm kind of a gesture enthusiast, so a connoisseur <laughs> of gesture, and so I appreciate all of the things that they communicate without saying it verbally. There's a lot of good ways to have a good choir. Your musical imagination could be off the charts and have a terrible gesture and still have a great, great choir. And I think about the act of doing this job as being highly complicated. I think that we have to be good at a lot of different things and conducting is one of those things. So I think about it as like an equation. I'm not really a math guy, but it's an equation, you know. 
gesture plus musical imagination plus who you are as a person plus your past experiences who you are as a singer plus your childhood plus your family experience now plus the poetry that moves you plus the you know all we get to bring everything which is why no two choirs really sound the same they're all a little bit different so i i think that the art of gesture is about efficiency and i've kind of fallen in love with efficiency as an older person like the most valuable thing i have is my time when i have to decide between spending time with my children and studying a score like these better be you know i better be using my time valuably if i'm giving up time with my family to make that be necessary and fruitful so I appreciate the efficiency of gesture, of communication. I think any, and you'll see these videos like, watch this eight-year-old kid conduct the Berlin Philharmonic, and isn't he wonderful? <laughs> and I would say that that's not really conducting. Um, that's passion, that's dance, and all of that is valuable, but that's not conducting. Conducting is disciplining your body, disciplining your mind, so that every gesture has specific meaning. Um, so my gesture tends to be, um, or when it's at its best, I should say, it tends to be really nuanced and understated so that I can be the window through which the music is seen. I don't want to be the door. I don't want to be the focal point. I don't want to be gesticulating wildly. And somebody walks out of the concert. I, I always am kind of annoyed by this. So if you're listening and you come to my concert, don't come to me with this compliment. <laughs> your, your conducting was just so passionate. It was so fun to watch you. That feels a little bit like a failure to me. I, I want to be unnoticed. I want to be a conduit. I want to be the same way that you think about your window pane. You're it's, it's there, and you notice that it's there, but it's not in any way the focal point. Perhaps there might be a way that I can, my gesture can help you hear differently. For example, I don't think conductors think about this enough, but when I turn to the tenors and give them a cue, yes, I'm cueing the tenors, but I'm also cueing the ear of the audience to the tenors because we're not really used to, I would say, as a general population, hearing really dense you know, polyphonic music. And so anything I can do as a conductor to draw attention to visually and and from an auditory standpoint, what's happening in the music to help them understand it better. I'm willing to accept that compliment, but I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be the the wildly gesticulating, you know, stereotypical conductor because I feel like that takes away from the ultimate goal, which is to express the music and to affirm students. Those are the two things that I think about every day. It's like, how can I get the music to be connected to my students, and how can I get the music to be connected to the audience, and how can I get to a position where I get to look at the choir and say, you guys are amazing, that was perfect, do it again. I love that, thank you. I, uh, you talked about the word efficiency, and I've always thought about conducting like um, it's not good or bad. It's either effective or it's not effective. Would mm -hmm. you agree or disagree with that statement? No, I think that that's, I think that's right. Uh, effective and efficient are two really good ways to think about gesture. And as I said, it's only one piece of the equation. So you know, and we only get as undergraduate students, you know, you get, might get you might get two classes. You get a basic conducting, and then you get a area specific conducting class. So how may, how good were you after you know two semesters of voice study? Oh. You need more time than that. It took time. me a whole year to perfect the eval. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just ridiculous, right? Yeah. So the idea that you're going to come out of your undergraduate degree and really have a facility with gesture is kind of it's just kind of ridiculous. You just can't get it. So you got to aspire to it. You got to think about it. You got to work it out on your own. And um, you know. Conducting at its worst gets in the way of the music, and it happens a lot. Um, conducting at, it be at its best just makes your rehearsal so much more effective and efficient. You don't have to stop and say things. You can just kind of stop and look at your hands, and then, then that'll just be a reminder to the choir that, oh, yeah, we're supposed to do what he looks like, and they don't need to know everything about it. Um, Dr. Clausen's uh, gesture that I admire so much is really very different than Dr. Chamberlain's. 
that I admire so very much, and they both can be effective in different circumstances. So we talk about the conductor's toolbox, you know, in basic, you know, my undergraduate conducting. When you're young, you know, it's like grandpa gave you the, the pliers, the hammer, <laughs> and one wrench, and your car breaks down along the side of the road, and you've got the hammer, so you just start, like, hammering. Well, that didn't do it. Let me take the pliers out. Nope, that didn't do it. But as you get to be more experienced, and if you work at it, you can become a mechanic that's got every tool that you need in every situation and then suddenly the mystery folds away like as you get older suddenly music isn't this mystery it's a very manageable skill that you can be really good at but it's experience again Mm -hmm. I, i just love that you're demystifying like this thing that so often can be looked at as this yeah this magical unicorn that nobody can understand and it's like it is a skill like driving a car like doing anything um and, um, and that makes it so much more approachable for anyone to step into something that they love in that way. Uh, you are a, you're a composer as well, which was um, new information to me. And I was like, wow, what does this guy not do? And, uh, and so I um, had the privilege of listening to um, your songs of love, hope, and wonder. Um, and so tell me a little bit about uh, where the inspiration for for the that collection of pieces came from, where the poetry comes from, where, I mean, just tell, tell me about it, because it is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, that set of pieces, well, first of all, thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening You're to welcome. the music, and um, <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, that set of pieces came about because of a summer research grant by Eastern Michigan University, and we were talking about time. I love composing. It is hard work. It is really hard work for me. Maybe it's easy for somebody else, but it's really hard work for me. And um, not mostly because of the notation, you know. Um, I digress. This set of pieces was specifically written for what I would say is, you know, average high school choirs. I wanted to write something that was approachable and something that would be meaningful. Um, I wanted to write something that was specific to to um, to me. And there's a the the poetry comes from a variety of of poets, um, and tonight eternity alone is a uh, Dr. Clausen set that text. And it's just got a magnificent setting of, of that piece to, of that of that text tonight. Eternity alone. If you don't know Dr. Clausen's setting of it, it's just amazing. So go find it. Um, so the first thing I wanted it to be was approachable. The second thing I wanted it to be was sort of atmospheric and to take in um, non-traditional choral techniques of you know, using recordings. of um, We were on tour with the EMU Choir in Florida. And so the the recording that comes with it is the actual, uh, the choir had a sort of an evening on the beach. And so I did a recording of that tide rolling in and used it in that set of pieces. I, I feel like composition is about, is is really about you as much as it is anything it's your relationship to that poetry as a composer and I'm writing it for other people but one of the reasons you don't know any of my music or that I was a composer is that I don't I don't have a real desire to have it published I don't have a desire to um, be known as a composer composition is a tool by which I learn about Bach and Mozart and composers that exist now I think it helps me to understand how pieces are put together I feel like when I'm composing I feel like a ninth grade kid in shop class where the the engine is all torn apart in front of them like well okay let's try to make something of this and um and it's been a journey for me I've always composed from from the very beginning of me approaching the piano, I've always played by ear. I've never, I was always just miserable at reading music. It was always just so much harder than playing music. So 
musical melody or that is the easy part like the imaginative part is the easy part the hard part for me is is always like <laughs> notating and notating and notating getting it exactly as i want it um yeah so it's it's a it's a beautiful set of pieces um i was privileged to get another research grant and i composed two pieces last summer during the pandemic and during the black lives matter right called um living in silence living with silence it's a set of pieces and this i did not i for the first time i, I just decided i wasn't going to care about who if anybody ever sings it again i just wanted to write a piece that was for the moment of all of us sitting in our homes suddenly um, I really, when I say us, I really sort of mean musicians, but probably others too. And this sort of sense of restlessness and loneliness and loss and at the same time, the value in the silence and the value in the, the forced time you're present and you need to be present. And so I'm a kind of a busybody. God, we did so much to our house last summer. My wife and I were talking about all the things we did. And, and you know, it generated by just this hesitance to slow down and to just let life come to you. And that was one of the, you know, silver linings of the pandemic was that it, there was, you had to, there was no choice. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I, we walked like 900 miles. <laughs> we did all the, we did, you know, we were just, we tried to keep ourselves busy and I think in some ways it was emotional emotionally needed but because we weren't prepared to just stop with everything but what what a blessing it turned out to be with our children we were able to stay healthy and so we just had this time with them and so blah 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 I ended this I I wanted to write a piece about that so the first movement is that sort of sentiment and the second movement um came after the death of George Floyd and suddenly silence meant something different to me. I began to think about silence as the generations of white privilege that I had been benefit of that I hadn't taken the time to consider. So I wrote a, a second movement. I wasn't really planning on it being a multi-movemented thing, but it it turned into that because I it felt almost irresponsible to not mention silence in that moment in what that took on for me. And they're both incredibly hard. <laughs> so I don't know. We'll, we'll sing them at the EMU choir because that's part of the, you know, dissemination portion of the grant is that they have to be. And I would feel really disappointed to not have them sung because I... I think they're probably my best work and I'm excited to hear them in in real life in living person so that's exciting to me so we'll we'll try to do those in the fall oh I'm excited yeah. I'm excited to hear them and and you actually um you created an event that was uh centered on social justice mm -hmm. right could you could you tell me a little bit about that sure so the sing for justice movement is um as far as I understand, was started in Minneapolis with Tefsa and other Minnesota musicians. And I went to the national conference that was in Minneapolis and had some conversations and wanted to bring this idea of Sing for Justice to Michigan. So we, we had an event here at EMU called Sing for Justice, and we had a number of choirs from around the state. It was really, really an interesting experience. Um, we had guest lecturers, we had guest ensembles, and it turned into something that I wasn't expecting, and it's just so much of, right, this thing that we do. We think it's gonna be this thing, but actually it turns into something different. And the, it was powerful and it was remarkable and I was really glad we did it. But what was interesting was that 
there were members, faculty members and student organizations that didn't want to be in the same room with one another. And that was surprising to me as faculty members and student organizations. And um, it's a reminder not to have a Pollyanna approach to justice issues, that it's not simple and that it's not, um, that peace is difficult and even acceptance can be difficult. And I think that um, if, if you're a white person of privilege, it can be, it can feel like a very, I don't know, I think that it's easy to have a simplistic approach to it. I think that um, it's very, very difficult for us to fully understand the complexity of, of all of these situations. We weren't really only speaking about white and black at the conference. We were speaking about um, Arab and Israeli difficulties. We were speaking about, you know, what does it mean? I, I went into it thinking, well, surely we can agree that music can be a source for healing for all people and that the arts can be a source of reconciliation. They can be used in that way. They can be used. And and I, I, it was remarkable, and my colleague Liza Maidens was, was fabulous in helping think through all of these issues and set up the logistics of it. But again, I just want to I just want to go back to if you think you have this figured out, you know, try an event like this. Go ahead and give it a shot. And but but approach it with humility. Approach it especially as if you happen to be a white person. You know, it's difficult. I I struggle with what my role is in this moment. I want to be a positive influence for change. Um, it's difficult to know because uh, we don't experience these issues in the same way that our brothers and sisters of color do. And, and certainly in a religious context, you know, if you are Palestinian or Arab or Israeli or <laughs> it's, 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 it's complicated. So um, all that to say, it was, a, it was very, very meaningful. We didn't do a second one. Um, I'm in. I'm in the throes of uh, thinking about doing another one because I do think, however difficult, it's a valuable and important piece to the puzzle of us all bringing these conversations to the forefront. I know for sure that not talking about it is not going to give us results that we want. Um, I'm not certain that shouting about it is going to give us the results we want. I'm curious if musicking about it might be useful i don't know i love that word musicking musicking that's great kind of, yeah why is art critical to our communities locally nationally and globally mm. we have a pretty active engagement philosophy here at eastern with the choir that is to say we sing concerts all on our own yes not very many of them Almost every concert we do is a collaborative event with either a community ensemble like Measure for Measure or uh, high school ensembles. We do dozens of high school collaborations every year. I feel like that's where we need to be to help, one, teachers, help students see what the next steps are to inspire both of those folks but also the parents who come to the concerts. My dad, farmer, not artistic in, <laughs> in the usual sense, loved me and allowed me to pursue this passion of music, but it would be difficult for me to see him really understanding and I have a lot of family members in that same boat. Like, so I think it's really, really important that we are, you know, yes, 
singing at Carnegie Hall is an amazing experience and every musician should try to have that experience. But singing for the middle school cafegimatorium in rural Michigan is every bit as critical to the mission work that we're doing here having conversations, letting them, letting this music wash over them without any expectation of how they're going to feel about it. There's going to be people who felt about it the way that I did. I didn't have any reason to feel about it the way that I did, but I did. And Robert Shaw had, you know, I had the same mission. When he started touring with the Robert Shaw Choir, he wanted to take the B minor mass to Springfield, Minnesota, and, you know, to you know, to come to Michigan and to let people experience this music and without necessarily lecturing for a week in advance, no, they might not understand everything that's happening, but they'll get exposed to it. So so I think the community work that we do is really important. Um, our board, our choir board, has a social mission to it where we collaborate with various local 501c3s, and um, this last year during the pandemic, the, the project that we were working on was the B minor mass. We knew we would never do a performance of it. Um, so we had students research 501c3s in the area and tie movements of the mass to the work that that uh, not-for-profit was doing and to expose the students to the resources that are available in their community through the musicking process. And it was awesome and of course those the students that did that work were the students that were exclusively virtual whether through health reasons or maybe they have family members so they weren't ever able to come in person so they were putting together the research so all that to say it's incredibly important i do think there is a place for it globally i do think there's a place for it nationally i think that my work the work of emu is primarily locally I want to reach the future Brandon Johnsons, and I want to reach the 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 parents of those students, and I want to reach people who disagree with me fundamentally on every political view I hold. I want to I want to have them exposed to poetry and to art, and then to receive their feedback about it. One of the things that I'm most proud of, and this I'll probably say this in closing is the way in which the EMU choir rehearses daily. Um, our daily rehearsals involve something that we call reflections. And these reflections are, one, we pursue excellence with all of our heart and mind and soul, and we do everything to the best of our ability. And it's very businesslike, except for this session. And we ask every student to get in front and talk about themselves and the music that we're pursuing. Some students are more scholarly in their approach to it. They want to talk about the scholarship of it. Some students want to talk about the the way that this piece has affected them because of their grandma's recent passing. Other students want to talk about this piece in relation to their religious beliefs and their political beliefs. And I think it is the most real living out of diversity that I've ever experienced because I'm asking my students not to believe the same things that their neighbors are and I'm asking them not to hide themselves from one another I'm asking them to bring their whole self to the music that we work on and share their perspective on that music with people that are going to disagree with them in the same space in a loving atmosphere which I think engenders genuine empathy across religion, across race, across different political spectrums. That's, I think, the most important work that we're doing here. I, I think the B minor is pretty important too, but it's, it's not the kind of work that I see that right now what Michigan humans need <laughs> in their lives is real different people talking in an un- abashed way about the things that they believe and how the music helps them come to understand it d more deeply so that i'm really proud of thank you so much mm -hmm. that's wonderful how um how can our listeners find you oh, how can they I, connect with you <laughs> well 
I guess the best way to do it is to be engaged with EMU. Um, there's a Facebook page for the EMU choirs. There is a YouTube channel if you are primarily interested in hearing recordings of us. Um, you have a website too, don't you? I do have a website. I'm not sure that anybody goes there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's brandonjohnsonmusic.com. It's a beautiful website. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, my, you know, my greatest wish for this, and you said it earlier, is to demystify the process. I feel like lots of people could live this rich art life in the arts. And so if anybody wants to reach out to me and have those conversations, or if they have questions about music, I'm more than happy to, I'm always happy to talk music. That's my fave. Thank you so much, Brandon. Mm -hmm. I am really grateful to get to spend time with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.